like the starting point for them is almost always something mathematical. And so long as I can remember, maybe mathematical is a little too high-minded geometry in some in some sense. So if the idea is as simple as I want to make some flattened octahedron related paintings, then that idea is enough is enough to uh, to serve as the starting point. Welcome to the Studio Break Podcast. I'm your host, David Linaway. For today's 176th episode, we're very excited to have on Daniel Merva, who was one of our 2016 Studio Break competition winners. And he is a professional artist that explores abstraction through various geometric and mathematical systems to come up with a very interesting and engaging formal abstraction. So once again, we'll be talking about that in depth. So stay tuned for that. I'd also recommend visiting Daniel's website before you listen, so check out danielmerva.com, and you can kind of see some of the work that we'll be talking about. If this is your first visit to Studio Break, we want to encourage you to check out some of the interviews that we have. Again, a lot of different artists working in a variety of materials, and we break down their studio practice, their history in these candid interviews and podcasts, so please check them out. Again, each of the artists have images of their work as well as links to their website so you can find out more in-depth information. Of course, you can follow that link to the iTunes store to listen to podcasts there and subscribe. You can also follow us in a variety of social media formats, so please like our Facebook page. Of course, you can follow our Tumblr account, that's studio-break.tumblr. And last but not least, send your tweets to at Studio Break on Twitter. And with that out of the way, here's our interview with Daniel. Stay tuned. Welcome to Studio Break, Daniel Merva. How are you this morning? Uh, quite well, thank you. And uh, where are we speaking with you from? I know that you did a, a stint, and after doing some research, Indiana and Illinois, are, are you from the Midwest? And I guess where are you currently residing? Yeah, the question of where I'm from is always kind of complicated. Uh, I was born in Arizona and then did a fair amount of growing up in central Illinois. But now I'm uh, living out in Denver. So I've been around a little bit. And again, you just moved out there in the last year, I believe you said? Uh, yeah, yeah. What kind of experiences did you have, I guess, when you were younger uh, in terms of the arts or maybe interests, I guess, in general? I mean, I always kind of drew. Uh, I don't know that I necessarily drew particularly well, like maybe slightly better than average for whatever an average, like say seven-year-old would be. <laughs> but uh, I would probably say that most of my childhood was probably spent building with Legos. Uh, so there was a lot, a lot of that. So, you know, you, you build this whatever set, you start with instructions and then from there you find uh, interesting pieces and then that might spark uh building something entirely entirely your own um so yeah i spent a lot of my childhood building like spaceships and robots it seemed like there were always those plans were, weren't always the most exciting and then you'd see like a sci-fi movie and be like that would be so much cooler if i did this you know so i feel you on that <laughs> 
And so in terms of just, you know, it sounds like, again, drawing and, and kind of, you know, building, um, again, Legos, I'm sure, is probably a very uh, common start in some areas. Um, but was that something then, as you got older, that, you know, you kind of thought, you know, this is something that I could uh, pursue more seriously? Or were you maybe more pragmatic and parents uh, encouraging you to become a lawyer? Or I don't know what. <laughs> uh, no, no. I, uh, my parents were always super supportive in whatever I did partially because I had a tendency to like make my own decisions and then tell them about it afterwards. Mm -hmm. uh, and they're always like, Oh yeah, that's pretty sensible. That being said, like at the end of say high school, I had taken a bunch of art classes, like, you know, the typical art classes that you take in high school, you know, ceramics, like a drawing painting class, et cetera, et cetera. And it was really the only thing that interested me a whole lot. And I think part of that, had to do with um, just really needing a, a creative outlet at mm -hmm. the time. So yeah, I, I applied to ISU uh, because I wanted to stay at home during during college. And then I also had um, two of my high school art teachers that had a big influence on me at that period. Both graduated from ISU with their, you know, um, art teaching degrees. So uh, that was definitely an influence. And uh, when I got there, I wasn't, I don't, think I really knew what I was going to do for for a while I was convinced I was going to be banking like prints or something mm -hmm. I didn't even take a painting class until like my literally the semester before I applied for my BFA if I remember correctly <laughs> so I got into the painting rooms and and there was all this accretion from previous painters and um, I started excavating it and and like originally just kind of cataloging it a little bit, but then that quickly turned into uh, sort of creating formal arrangements on on pieces of paper of like these little bits of paint and cast off materials. And so that's that's what really really got me interested in painting. Although my work has shifted significantly since then, uh, I think that initial catalyst was that finding remnants and then discovering a a use or an, or creating associations between them to kind of delve into that experience and, and obviously we can kind of break down the transition into painterhood were you kind of more of an object maker maker then when you kind of started and started working through your bfa yeah no no <laughs> i was i was really uh i was really sort of drawing focus like and i now that i think about it, now that i like seriously think back to it i think i was going to start getting into more um like oh what would you call that like concept art like for movie or video games or whatever when i first got in because i was drawing i was drawing characters and i was well i was mostly drawing characters at that point which were probably coming out of like dungeons and dragons and stuff sure sure <laughs> And I really, I, I don't think I knew what I was going to be doing with that, which is kind of funny to think about now. What was it that kind of shifted you more towards, uh, I guess, the fine arts as opposed to design or, you know, animation or something like that? I took a lot of drawing classes. I took uh, a lot of life drawing classes, uh, uh, mostly with LJ Douglas right at the beginning of my time at ISU. And then I took the intaglio class with uh, Sarah Smelser mm -hmm. and... What acted for 
activated for me there was like the process and the smell of the materials and um it was like really like physical it felt it felt like chemistry to me and so like the processes became really interesting to me and like the sort of like sensory experience of making prints and i don't remember if it was the same semester or if it was the next semester that i took you know the first of the painting classes and i had a similar experience just working with the oil paints and the oils and the smell of that and like the color mixing and that sort of thing and then that's when i really started exploring the like the painting tables and the painting surfaces and sort of excavating mm-hmm. collage material from that which then I started trying to trying to figure out like a way to contextualize that process and it kind of became like a way to think about like art history as archaeology and so I started looking at looking at like a lot of modernist painters and and you know part of this is just the way that the curriculum at ISU was structured so you you know you'd go through things and you'd you'd read about Clement Greenberg when you're making, you know, non-representational paintings. Mm-hmm. And so a combination of like reading those articles and thinking about like paint as a thing rather than um, like something to be applied. Mm-hmm. Like I was never thinking about paint as, as just color that you place on a flat surface. It was always an object to me. And maybe that has to do with more of my, object making tendencies from growing up but well and to give us some context too so what what year would this be oh gosh we're we're talking about super early we're we're talking about like 2004 or something like that well so at the time you know what were the the forms that you were painting on what do they look like are are they canvases are they certain shapes could you kind of just maybe break down the the process of how you were making things at the time they're still mostly rectangular and i think part of that was wanting to still work within the normal confines of what one would consider the picture plane. And I was creating like formal associations between these little like bits that might be, uh, you know, two or three inches long or what have you. So they were never very, very large. But after a time I started, I started playing around with like building my own like object history. And that's where I got into uh, pouring paint and creating, uh, creating masses of paint as like a a physical object, and that's that's probably a, about where you can start looking at uh, looking at my website for like some of the some of the stuff from like 2010, where I was making like really objecty paintings, uh, mm-hmm. which I still considered paintings, even though like a, a lot of them were some of them were like freestanding sculpture and or they were just like slabs of paint, but in kind of like a tongue-in-cheek sort of way i would always include like some sort of canvas element like even if i was just capturing paint that was cast off of a of a of a grid painting i made all these like little little poured grid paintings even if i was just capturing paint off of that i'd often like toss a scrap of canvas in there so i could still like call it a painting right Mm -hmm. (laughs) like the idea of painting as pigment in a medium on some sort of substrate so I was I was kind of playing around with that sort of cheekily. So you graduated for, with your BFA what year then? Uh, 2007. And so what did you wind up doing afterwards? Did you wind up kind of like going to, to graduate school right away? 
you know, I, I applied to a bunch of schools, uh, kind of all around the country, um, and ended up going to Hunter in, uh, in New York. You know, the program was interesting. The studios were awesome. All of my uh, contemporaries were great. But uh, I was kind of miserable living in New York. So that turned out to be a rather unproductive time because I it was just really hard for me to make work when I wasn't um, like emotionally happy. So I was there for about uh, about a semester and then moved back to central Illinois and took a little bit of a break and then reapplied and towards the end of 2010, 20 or the beginning of 2011 or something. And no, actually it would have been towards the end of 2010 and, uh, and went to Indiana university, which was a, uh, a place that felt more like home. And going in, were there a lot of differences in terms of the programs, in terms of the background of the students or what their interests were in terms of art making or what was the, the difference like? When I went to Indiana university, on the other hand, like the painting program is like, really situated towards uh like pretty rigorous observational like there's a lot of figure painters there's a lot of really serious landscape painters uh and so when i came in i was one of two non-representational painters out of you know a group of like 12 or 14 at the time and there were a few from the previous year as well but it was it was a different sort of environment like the the faculty were coming from a different place and I think that was super helpful for me because um, I think that really started to get me interested in um, some more traditional techniques, which has, you know, kind of been the direction that the that the current the more current work is using. I guess just to kind of think about it relative to the time, then. So, what would be like maybe the first series of work that you would make? Um... Well, I mean, heck, if you if you look at my website, you can look at. Um, like 2011, I was making things that were really uh, super related to how I was thinking about about making work between ISU and grad school. Like they were a lot of uh, sort of sculptural paintings that stood off from the wall a lot that had illusionistic things going on, but were mostly just color play when you look at it. Mm-hmm. And then we get into like, 2012 and there's still like a little bit that bit of that that i did early on but then like and it wasn't even like related to anything like super serious i was just thinking about okay so how many different types of paintings can i make i can make i can make paintings with acrylic i can make paintings with spray paint i can make paintings with oils oh why don't i try to make a fresco (laughs) and it was it was that sort of like dumb and I, when I say dumb, I don't necessarily mean dumb in a bad way because, like, dumb can be really good sometimes. It was that sort of dumb impulse that got me into uh, making frescoes, which really got, in addition to uh, the influence from the faculty there who were made paintings on super traditional grounds, some of them. That's kind of what got me interested in the, the current direction of the work. So I started making um, frescoes, and they were really, like, material experience experiments starting off and then i started to figure out what i could actually do with them practically before we get too far explain the process in terms of just like the differences because it sounds like maybe before you were working maybe more with found materials as opposed to kind of prepared materials so how how would like um working fresco be again kind of different and again, I, I I might have a handful of uh, young students listen to this one day and be like, "What's a fresco?" You know. <laughs> <laughs> uh, 
Uh, so, like, fresco is it's a very old painting technique. Uh, the Sistine Chapel, for example, is fresco, and it's basically applying wet pigment into wet plaster so that uh, the pigment absorbs into the plaster as the plaster dries and crystallizes so it becomes like a, a part of of the object so it, it um, like it becomes like a solid thing so it's super process oriented like you have there's all kinds of preparations that you have to make you have to what's called slake your lime plaster which um which is basically like soaking it in water over like a month so that it absorbs all the water and has um there's something that happens with it chemically that i don't quite understand Mm. (laughs) to be perfectly honest uh but it like changes the chemical composition so that when you add what i was adding was uh marble dust basically um when you add that to it it turns into something that um that will solidify as opposed to just dry out i i I was working on panels so you'd have to prepare the panels in particular ways mostly by giving it some sort of something to grip to um so i was coating my panels with uh with canvas like gluing that down so that it would have some tooth to it and then also i was also making some smaller frescoes on canvas that was partially a way of like doing something the wrong way, but well, <laughs> so mm-hmm. that, and I'm, I'm still really interested in, although it's become a uh, lesser component of my work, I'm always kind of interested in that muscular act of like, this is a process that you have knowledge of and having like a, a degree of um, enough mastery over it to do it wrong, but to have it still work out. If that makes sense. Yeah. And I, I would imagine at some point then, was there like a decision to uh, work with the resin? Because it seems like, again, that the surface differences, you have, again, a number of works from this period. And I think we were just talking maybe around um, 2011, 12, where, again, you just have that kind of like raw fresco or it looks really dry. And then I would imagine that it's just kind of like just covered in that um, that layer that gives it that sheen. So I really liked some of what was going on with the with the non-resin fresco but it was all like super super flat you know and so the resin was a way for me to try to work with different like surface qualities so yeah the the resin ended up obliterating the uh obliterating the the dry the dry matness of of the fresco and then so I, I try to figure out like how i could bring bring back something that's matte or bring back another surface quality uh so that's where you see me uh starting to work with originally i was starting to work with uh the the acrylic paints that i um that i've historically used uh and then later on i started incorporating um glitter and other materials yeah, the, the acrylic paint had issues because it, you know, basically completely covered up what was what was underneath. Uh, whereas with like the glitter that I was started to use after that, and then even later where I started to sand back into the resin, I mean, you know, the sanding of the resin changes it from gloss to matte, but it um, it leaves it transparent. 
Um, so that that ended up being a really exciting, um, a really exciting thing for me to to play with later on. Well, and again, I'm I'm interested in hearing more and more about this process. Literally going through the timeline, you'll see this kind of like slow developing layering and layering to the point where again the current work looks so much so deep. Yeah, I mean that that that's there's kind of multiple directions that that came together sort of all at once. For example, uh, I'm sure you can relate to this growing up in in Illinois. It's the flatlands, so like the sky is huge you know most of the time and if you're if you're out on a country road and it's sunset you don't have like you know the sort of thing that you'd have out west or anywhere where there's mountains really or even like tall trees uh where you have like the sun sort of sinking behind like this object and creating that you know typical sunset glow you Mm -hmm. end up basically like especially when the sun's like really far down or still kind of far up you end up with basically like this smooth gradient. Um, and so I think that's that like visual memory is kind of where that, uh, that process of creating those, uh, the gradients that you see in some of the later frescoes, uh, came about. So through kind of like a, a experience with the world as opposed to, again, some sort of artistic reference. So, so sure, there, there is definitely that component that's coming from coming from that experiential moment. But then there's another part of it that is was about creating like a specific visual phenomenon. With if if you look at some of the the shaped frescoes, like the backsides are painted, so I was creating like a reflected light situation, and that reflected light situation was was meant to interact with the front surfaces. So like I might put a really warm color on the back so that the wall would reflect like a warm and then have a cool on the, in the actual painting activity of the fresco so that it, it created like more push and pull or that the uh, wall might start to step a little bit forward in front of the, uh, the object Okay, so like here's here's the other the other portion of of where the, those ideas were coming from is I was, you know, teaching color theory class, which was awesome. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I I really I really loved it, and I was also talking to all of these observational painters who would talk about you know the interaction of light and you know I wasn't necessarily interested in like creating those situations. Or like rendering those situations is more accurate, uh, but I was more interested in creating them. So yeah, it, it was it was kind of a confluence of a lot of things. Yeah, yeah, and I think it's interesting to kind of see that that transition because again, as you kind of move, you know, more and more current with these kind of again, I'll ask you about these. I in my notes I listed them as snake shapes, so I apologize if that's offensive. <laughs> <laughs> But I notice again, like as you kind of continue working through those those shaped canvases, um, those um, color shadows really start to pop off and kind of interact with the colors that are on top of the painting as well. Right, right, right. But again, just thinking about that relative to, you know, teaching about color theory, it makes sense. And you can kind of see that kind of transition in the work. Um, and I guess just to, to think about it from like a timeline, I guess, um, are we about the time for like like your your thesis show? And I guess the last thing to follow that up is I think we're maybe talking a little bit about how to explain these kind of shaped 
um, canvases and where that comes from as well. So yeah, we're, we're hitting on like my last year at, uh, at IU when we're talking about um, the period of time that that work developed. So ramping up to my thesis show and um, teaching the color theory class simultaneously. And so I was interested in creating the like light and simultaneous contrast situations that I that I talked about with my students. Um, but as I'm sure you can see from like a lot of the work that I've that I've done, I've never necessarily been interested in. I've been interested in like the picture plane and that concept uh, and like the tip, the what one would consider the normative bounds of painting, you know, like colors within a rectangle you know i've been interested in that mostly as a as a as a way as something to like work against but also still argue that everything that i make is a painting so i started making the frescoes and i was trying to figure out a way that i could make like sculptural frescoes and uh what i ended up coming to is like building these panel units that were that were a parallelogram so you know, like not quite a diamond because two of the parallel sides were longer than the short sides, if that makes any sense. And then in order to make it like truly sculptural, I took one of the short sides and I uh, added like a 10 degree bevel to it so that when you linked a number of them together, they would push out from the wall or pull back in. But then they'd also all have like a, you know, I, I mass produced these shapes and then I started like the individual units. And then I started putting them together in various ways so that each of the pieces had a structural relationship to all the other pieces because of the the units that they were built out of. I mean, I think that was partially derivative from like my childhood building with Legos. And then it was also, you know, thinking at, about and looking at uh, Frank Stella. But then I've also always been interested in um in like mathematics and in geometry and figuring out like what what you can do with that and so those units for me became like became like a nomenclature have you seen the movie uh contact or read the book that I've, I've seen the movie the first thing that gets that gets their attention when they uh, hear the radio signal from the aliens is that they're talking in primes. Mm-hmm. So like this idea of math as a universal communicator. So sure, math can probably breach like non-Earth species. But like among humans, we also have like the visual phenomenon, the way that we experience that, which communicates across most people. You can't, you know, some people are colorblind, for example, or can't see. Um so there's, so there's that unfortunate uh, circumstance. But in general, uh, we can trust to a certain extent that we'll all perceive color in a fairly similar way, you know, within within like the margin of error, and we can all perceive color phenomenon in fairly similar ways. And again, that's getting back to where I was teaching a color theory class, and and that influence coming into the work. So I was um, building these structures that had mathematical relations to one another uh, and treating that as like a unit of communication and then working with color phenomenon that should be 
fairly perceptible to the vast majority of of people and thinking about that as like a common a common another form of common communication and then all the while i'm still building making the small frescoes which were which were really far more about material play but that notion of finding sensory phenomenological experiences that are common and then that should be perceptible and then also working with mathematical units that are that can serve as a form of communication or that are ideal states um which is really where you get into the uh some of the more current flat paintings from like 2015-2016 uh where i was making the uh the paintings that were um derivative of uh platonic solids and to think about this relative to like a, a studio practice i mean are you kind of like mass producing all these shapes and then I guess I'm just curious how calculated they are, you know? So, like, is there maybe, like, you've got this, you know, line of these different shapes and there's, like, a particular color scheme that you're going to work through for them individually? Um, or are they worked out singularly? So the... the um... Or do you have a studio apprentice that does it all and then you <laughs> sign it on the back? I'm kidding. <laughs> uh, yeah, no, no. And actually, oh, man, that methodology would not sit well with me, <laughs> nor would it necessarily work with, with uh, how I produce things. So um, so what my starting point usually is, is I find the shape that I'm going to work with. Um, if it's If it's the shaped frescoes, I think about some sort of quadrilateral that that is interesting and has has specific traits to it and so like i'd start with a rhomboid or a trapezoid and make make a number of them because i know that i'm going to want to work with a shape because i've already started out by putting them together in my head and trying to find combinations of things and then i try to find those combinations physically, you know, with the actual shapes mm-hmm. after I've, after I've cranked out, you know, 50 or something like that. And then once I've played with them a bit, I try to establish some sort of, some sort of rule set for them. So like, if you look at the, the shaped frescoes from like 2015, those are all based on a trapezoid with one of the short ends with a, like 10 or 15 degree bevel but they're all units of four so like that was the rule set that i had is trapezoid 10 degree bevel four units together uh and trying to find all of the all of the interesting shapes that i could so i'd you know play with them on a flat surface to find an interesting shape or a shape that was you know that was interesting to me and then i'd put them together and then move on to the next one so like as part of putting those shapes together, I'd also be thinking about the sculptural space that they'd occupy, you know, how far they'd stand out from the wall. And so sometimes I'd be trying to push push that closer or further away. And then once they're all ready to be painted, then I go back to thinking about that sculptural situation and trying to find a a phys- like a color situation that will that will have some sort of interaction like that with, with its sculptural situation. So I might put a, like a super bright, hot, warm color uh, on the part that's closest to the wall 
and a cooler color to uh, on the part that's um, furthest away from furthest away from the wall, so that it sort of defies the physical situation. In that whole idea that warmer colors recede and cooler colors advance. So with each individual object, I'd then be addressing it as as its own thing. And but then again. I'd be thinking about like, well, what colors have I already used? I don't want to repeat myself too much. Um, although I have a tendency to be really drawn to uh, to like the more synthetic, bright, um, fluorescent colors. And I think part of that is just this notion of working with a an old medium, but um, working in super contemporary colors. So there's like an interesting relationship between something that might be really contemporary versus something that's really old. And again, it sounds like most of the shapes, again, trapezoids and parallelograms and, you know, mathematics, these are all the the kind of things that are helping you generate these shapes and these ideas. Uh, Yeah, yeah. I mean, what I actually ended up finding, and it was kind of interesting, is that, um, you know, I could generate really similar sorts of shapes with both the the parallelograms and the trapezoids. So like, um, and again, unfortunately for your listeners there, if they want to actually like really grasp this, they're going to have to look at my website, sure, uh, sure. which I guess is an unfortunate, um, hopefully. Uh, so if you look at some of the paintings from like 2015, I have like a, like a C shape, right? Mm-hmm. Or actually it's more of a U because it's pointed upward. But then if you look at the, shaped frescoes from 2013 i also have that that uh that c shape again and it's similar but it's um like like they're almost an echo of each other but it's like an echo of two different people saying the same thing and and that just has to do with the mathematical the mathematical properties of of uh trapezoids and parallelograms as they relate to each other um you know i was working with fairly similar angles and uh, fairly similar sizes. So they ended up having a similarity. No, I, I, again, I think it's interesting to kind of see the relationship. And I guess, you know, thinking to the to the kind of most, again, what I would imagine is the most current series are these, again, they're kind of almost like they look like gems almost, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, but then just the way that the colors interact and especially with all the detail images, you can kind of see where, you know, certain colors will pop out or look dimensional. Others will look flat. Areas of the painting almost look like you can, you know, like, again, they really recede. So what are the, what are the, is it kind of a similar process then for these most current works or what's the, how has the process changed, if at all? Uh, you're making reference now to the, to the flat paintings from like 2016? Mm-hmm. So those illusionistic effects that you're seeing where where portions recede or advance uh, definitely does have a uh, fairly direct correlation to what I was doing with the frescoes. It's just doing it on a flat surface rather than negotiating a sculptural surface. So that that, that was achieved by layering up like translucent layers of, of, um, of paint um, multiple times over the course of the surface. So it, it's it's just like like how an oil painter might build up glazes. It's the same general sort of process. So you have situations where the the light is going through multiple layers of 
paint um, all the way back to the back surface, which for those is a um, like a traditional traditional rabbit skin glue and marble dust gesso that's you know built up over multiple layers and then sanded like glass smooth. So it has this um, this highly reflective quality with with uh, with the light. And so that's something that I'm sort of relying on in order to get to get that that sense of depth and to really get those um, those translucent layers to activate. And in, you know, in some cases, uh, you can see that I've used more opaque colors, and that that's part of what pushes it to the surface. But then you also have the the color relationships that are within the painting that uh, produce. Um, areas that push or pull so yeah that that definitely does relate to the to the fresco work uh because i'm doing the same sort of things again i'm curious you know one of the things that we haven't mentioned is either like time too in, in terms of layering some of these more, more recent ones and maybe we can think back to the some of the paintings that we were just talking about i mean how many layers i mean like how long is this process taking to to work through one of these and again it's just so interesting to think about how people edit you know i'm sure some people walk might walk in and process and be like that's done and then you're like oh no there's a lot more to go i don't know (laughs) in terms of the process it you know i'd be working on like four or five of these at a time so it would be a matter of like you know masking off your your shape that you're going to paint and all the shapes in these are related to finding you know three points on on the exterior and linking those so it's all kind of like a set process. So I'd find my points, mask it off, seal the masking tape, and then and then paint the colors. But like I'd go from one to the next to the next to the next. And so that process was was pretty fast. Like I'd do I'd do a layer on all four paintings in like half an hour, maybe. Uh and since it's acrylic and it's fairly thin layers, I can come back in like an hour and hit them again. So so the layers build up pretty quickly, but like between each layer, I have to decide, okay, is this finished? Are the colors, uh, are the colors creating enough, enough depth? Is there, is any one particular color situation predominating and can I, do I need to push that further or is it, or is it pretty well, pretty well set? Uh, am I creating enough, um, enough interesting instances within the painting while still having like an overall feeling. Then of course there's always those instances where, you know, you'll find, you'll find something that you love in a painting and you'll start to cherish it. And then that ends up killing it, you know? So a couple of these, I practically completely obliterated um, almost everything that I had and then had to build up again. So uh, it really was kind of like a uh, negotiation between myself and the colors and the paintings that I was also working on, you know, the other paintings that I was working on, because it's just kind of the nature of, of that sort of working style where things will start to talk to each other as you're working on them in the studio. 
because you're working on them as a group. So of course they're going to you're going to find relationships between them. Well, and it's interesting to see some of the uh, installation shots too, because you know it looks like when you're exhibiting these, you are kind of thinking about them in a in a larger context, the way that they might relate. The, the shaped frescoes specifically, um, I'm trying to find associations between the forms. Part of that is because due to the way that they they have a tendency to look like characters, you know, like like letters almost. But I don't want them to look that much like like letters. I'm searching for a way to negate that, and one way to do that is to focus on focus on finding like interesting negative space relationships between between them. Um, so that's that's part of what I'm looking for. Another part of it is. I know I just said that I don't want them to look like characters, but I definitely do want them to look like they're designed to communicate something. Um, and so by putting putting shapes next to one another that have uh, a definite structural relationship, I I'm, I'm use that to sort of highlight the nat their nature as... Um, as things that have a common ancestor and structurally. What what are you currently working on? Are you working on any any shows on the horizon, or are you just uh, again just kind of producing and producing and producing uh, in anticipation when <laughs> when you get that next uh, offer? Uh, yeah, I'm definitely more in a in a productive mode at this point. Um, uh, limited somewhat due to a significantly smaller uh, production space. So what I have going on right now is uh, cranking out more of the dodecahedron, the platonic solid-related paintings from 2016. Uh, I have uh, a few more of those in terms of uh, shapes that I want to uh, hammer out. There's one that I actually brought with me from Illinois that's... Uh, kind of in a really unfinished state but it's it's proving to be uh it it's it's an interesting seed you know kind of like uh kind of a nice starting point once i have some more of those worked out i have uh i have plans for making more of the flat flat platonic solid related paintings but using a different platonic solid as my starting point so Making some octahedron-related paintings, I think, is the next step, and possibly trying to figure out if I can do anything with uh, with a, uh, a cube. Mm -hmm. But I'm not entirely sure if if they'll if they'll produce any interesting shapes. I have some collage work that I'm kind of pecking away at that I started when I when my studio space wasn't wasn't uh, quite set up, and um, I'm thinking about going back to uh, some more sculptural, even more sculptural work, still wall-related, wall but um, I have these uh, like really three-dimensional isodecahedron-related structures that I built in like 2013 that, um, that I'm thinking about revisiting. Um, the initial run of them were had some um, uh, material and structural flaws that I uh, that I want to uh, work out because you know I can't stand an idea not being well executed or as well executed as I'd like. So 
in terms of just like thinking about like even the shapes that like a new series or you know some some work that you're visualizing in your head is resolved i mean do you do you carry around a sketchbook and you know work uh religiously in it or is it something that i'm curious because i, I didn't even bring it up <laughs> uh yeah yeah I, I really um and this you know will probably make some of my some of my contemporaries cringe a little bit, but I, I really, I don't keep a sketchbook very much. Like almost everything I do is, uh, is stored in my head, which, which does sound perilous, but thankfully a lot of my ideas are, are like the starting point for them is almost always something mathematical. And so long as I can remember, maybe mathematical is a little too high-minded like ge- geometry in some in some sense. So if the idea is as simple as I want to make some flattened octahedron related paintings, then that idea is enough is enough to uh, to serve as the starting point. And so I so I just kind of like store that idea and then I th- ruminate on it for a while thinking about like, okay, so how, what is the shape going to look like once it's flattened out? And I might, uh, I do like digital research, you know, so I'll find like a 3d model of a dodecahedron and I'll spin it and then I'll pause the spin and then, you know, save some images of that and just kind of look at them for a while. And then I think about, okay, so what, what's this thing going to look like flattened out and then how, what painting processes can I enact on top of it? Um, so no, I really don't work from a, a sketchbook. It's all kind of in my head. And I think a lot of that has to do with, again, going back to my childhood experiences of building with Legos. You, Once you know that vocabulary so well that it's it's practically a second language to you, you can assemble things in your head. And that that's pretty much what I do. Uh, in terms of my studio practice, so I don't I don't really sketch very much. Yeah, it's uh, again interesting just to think about those different processes, and I know that there's a hesitation in there about the sketchbook thing. And again, I when I have one with me, I'll, I'll use it. But again, it's not something that's a religious thing, but for some people it is. But yeah, it just yeah. strikes me again that there's like this thing that you're envisioning, you know, and you're tweaking it slightly until it's just right, and then it's like production time, you know. Yeah. Yeah. Well, again, it sounds like a very fertile place to to be, and again, it'll be exciting to see. Um, I don't know if your new environment uh, also kind of, I don't know, changes something in there. I'm looking forward to seeing how, especially in terms of color, that uh, being out west, being out of the uh, the flatlands, will be um, will influence the work. Well, again, thanks so much for taking the time. I, I appreciate it. Uh, yeah, yeah. Thank you for uh, thank you for the interview. It was really great. Thanks once again to Daniel for joining me. Of course, you want to visit his website, danielmerva.com. And again, it's right there in that link. So just click it and go check out some more artwork if you haven't already. As always, if you are now a new listener, please check out the other podcasts that we have available on Studio Break. Again, each of our interviews have these in-depth formats where we go in and talk about the past experiences, what's going on in studio work. So please check them out again. 
We are in iTunes, so please follow that link. If you listen in iTunes, subscribe to the podcast. Of course, you can always help out by leaving us some comments, some feedback there, so that other people can find this podcast. You can also help by spreading the word through social media, so please do that. Again, you'll want to like our Facebook page. Again, we provide a number of updates of new guests, opportunities, things like that. You can follow our Tumblr account at studio-break.tumblr. And, of course, you can send tweets to at Studio Break on Twitter. Again, always nice to see uh, new art and hear from people, so please feel free to say hello. As always, I do want to thank Skylar Mail for providing the music to Studio Break. You can check out his artwork. His website is SkylarMail.net. If you'd like to see my artwork, you can visit DavidLinaway.com. And again, there's a number of new paintings and things like that up there. So if you haven't checked it out in a while, please feel free to visit and check out the work. And last but not least, I do want to thank you for listening. We hope that you enjoyed today's episode. We'll talk to you real soon.